from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, here for today's show on the work of Catalyst and their amazing president and CEO, Deborah Gillis. We're going to be exploring how Catalyst accelerates and advances women at work. We're going to talk about the principles and policies and practice that contribute to real progress on the measures that matter. And we're going to get a chance to learn about Deborah's own personal journey into this unusually impactful role. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. If you have questions for Deborah or stories to share about moving from diversity to true inclusiveness or your own experience in advancing women at work, we'd love to hear from you. Just give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also reach us by email at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Uh, send it into Patty and she'll bring it into me. Um, and also you can tweet out at bizradio111. Um, so we're going to be joined today by Deborah Gillis. She's been politically active since her adolescence. She represents a practiced and powerful voice in gender equality. Right out of college, she launched her career as a policy advisor to the Premier and Cabinet of Ontario, where she advised the, them on a range of social justice policy issues, including employment equity, anti-racism efforts, and LBGT rights. She then worked as a consultant championing initiatives to mentor women with PwC and Grant Thornton and as chief of staff to the leader of the Liberal Party. She ran for office not once but twice, cementing herself as a powerful role model for other women. And that was all prior to her work with Catalyst, a leading global nonprofit that partners with some of the world's most powerful CEOs. Joining Catalyst in 2006 as direct executive director of Catalyst Canada, she went on to lead their expansion into the Asia-Pacific region, becoming chief operating officer in 2012 and then global president and CEO in 2014. She is the fourth president in Catalyst's 55-year history. I think that's an amazing uh, track record to, have, uh, to walk into, and the first internal successor. In her current role as CEO and president, she continues to put her passion to work as a tireless advocate, really changing the world one fair, diverse, and inclusive workplace at a time. With her unique blend of inspiration, strategic vision, and business knowledge, Deborah advises world leaders, Fortune 500 CEOs alike on how to accelerate gender equality. And as a thought leader and global influencer, she often takes the world stage at events such as the World Economic Forum and has been interviewed by dozens of media outlets, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, BBC, and CNN. And now... It's our turn. We get her here on Women at Work. Deborah, I am honored to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for the lovely introduction. I'm really excited to be with you today. I must say, just listening to that opening, I'm feeling old and tired. (laughs) (laughs) How about accomplished and deserving? Could we trade it up? Thank you very much. Um, Deborah, one of the things I would love is if you could help us understand Catalyst as more than just a tagline. I'd love to tell you about Catalyst. So I'd actually start with the story of Catalyst founding, if you don't mind. We were founded in 1962. So, you know, I'd remind your listeners to kind of think back to that moment in the the early stages of the struggle for women's rights. And our founder, Felice Schwartz, was a a college-educated woman. She was a mother. She had been brought up in a family that owned a business when her parents needed to transition the business leadership they did to her brother and then she was brought in after the family business was sold her her husband's job got transferred to another state and what she found is that it was really difficult for her to get a job as a mother of three despite all the experience that she had. And she was looking around, really, at the group of women that she knew, had gone to college with, had worked with, and she was looking at the growth of the U.S. economy and saying, essentially, there's something wrong here, that all of these well-educated women 
can't find jobs in the workforce. And so her original view of Catalyst was, we need to help women get back into the workplace. And so Catalyst started there. And we like to say in those early days, our focus was really, again, on helping women, giving them advice and support. How would you go on an interview? How would you talk about your experience? And over time, we evolved to a model that we like to say is not about fixing women. It's about (laughs) fixing organizations and the (laughs) culture in those organizations, which is where we are today. That's um, uh, very important, although clearly to me kind of uh, amusing, maybe ironic um, distinction that's really quite important. Um, that there's that while those original efforts, it sounds like Catalyst started as one of the first formal reentry programs. In many ways, in fact, the first piece of research that we did asked the question: Would you consider hiring a woman on a part-time basis as a manager? And your listeners would be happy to know that fifty percent of respondents said yes. <laughs> I'm glad about the, those fifty. I'm a little concerned about the other 50. (laughs) (laughs) But it's better than some polls show right now. So that's not bad. Um, But also that, as you noted, you catalyst shifted from instead of trying to coach women, how do you change the landscape? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think in many ways, that continues to be the biggest issue that's facing us. How do we influence and change the cultures of organizations, the behaviors of individuals that are leading those organizations so that women and other diverse and underrepresented minorities have the opportunity to be successful? We need to really keep the emphasis on that part of the equation because if we don't get that right, if we don't make the cultural changes, if we don't have um, new ways of working and understanding workplace dynamics and processes, et cetera, so that um, they're responsive to the modern world and the way we live and work today, then it's going to continue to be difficult for women to make the progress that they deserve. Absolutely. And it also sounds like this is an arc that mirrors um, the changes that have happened with feminism as a whole. You know, that the first wave was giving women the right to vote, simply having a voice, getting to weigh in on the matter. And then um, the whole second wave of feminism was about how do we get women in the room? But it sounds like by focusing on the culture of organizations, the behavior of leaders to help women actually be successful, that's not about headcount. That's about something much bigger. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it really is giving meaning to the inclusion part of the diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. agenda that so many organizations have talked about. I think we correctly and importantly focused on the numbers, as you say, do we have people um, in the room? But the question is, once you're in the room, are you being given a fair opportunity and voice at that table mm-hmm. to, you know, really contribute fully? And and that's the part of this agenda that as we've evolved, um, I think is is not only important, but I'm I'm happy to say that I hear more and more organizations really understanding. Do you find that the point of entry for organizations is one of um, values about um, what people can bring to the table, or is it driven by public pressure or bottom line? I would say there's a combination of all of those things, actually, Laura. I mean, it starts with... um, you know, what's the business case? Why should we pay attention to these issues? Um, But importantly, what I'm hearing more and more is that the conversation has evolved from why should we do this to how do we make progress? But in talking about the how, there's, there's certainly that piece that ties back to a recognition that to serve the market, you need to look like the market, that Mm -hmm. we're in a competitive talent environment where um, organizations want to and be able to compete for the best and brightest talent. And certainly there's a piece that does tie back to values, as as you mentioned. I do think for many organizations, when they talk about inclusion, it is described as a core value. This is who we are. This is how we treat each other. Um, and 
for me, part of how this work needs to evolve is that that component of the values piece needs to really be baked in, or as I like to say, we need to get to a point where there's you know really zero tolerance for compromising those values around inclusion because they're so core to basically who an organization is and how they treat each other and how they operate in in the world around them. So it's the difference in many ways of having, say, a diversity officer um, reporting and tracking stats on um, underrepresented groups in the organization and, say, the effort of making sure that on every team, um, on the board, um, in each leadership group, there's a variety of backgrounds and experiences. Yeah, and and it's really saying um, you can have diversity and not have inclusion. Mm. As I often mm-hmm. say, diversity is a fact. It exists. It's so it's represented on every team. Some dimensions of diversity you can see <laughs> and some you can't. But inclusion, that's a choice. That's a conscious and intentional choice that that you make in the decisions you make every day, the interactions that you have, and sometimes that's big things. That's putting policies and practices in place, and sometimes that's small things. That's who you call on on the meeting, mm-hmm. whether you um, interrupt behaviors that create really what we call those microaggressions. It's who you spend time with, um, you know, walking down the hallway and who you speak to. Those things that are uh, really demonstrate that you are including everyone, that's a choice. That's how you choose to behave and act. And it's all the little pixels that comprise the big picture. Exactly right. And so is this um, kind of what you talk about, because what you talk about is the difference of compliance versus commitment. Yeah, that's exactly right. It, you know, it's a, that term is one that I often use a lot. And, and to me, that is also the journey, really, that where we've gone from, okay, what's the business case? Mm-hmm. Um, all right, there's data that suggests we need to pay attention, or we're required to report on statistics and representation, to really understanding and believing as a core value that an organization is stronger when it is inclusive. And again, our our research, Catalyst Research, certainly shows that when there is more inclusion, when employees feel a sense of being uniquely valued for who they are and a sense of belonging to a team, that's when innovation happens, that's when team citizenship increases. You, you create that environment where everyone's able and feels that they are supported in ways that can allow them to contribute. That's a journey from kind of checking the box to actually buying in a, in a positive way that says this is good for everybody and needs to be part of who we are as an organization going forward. Absolutely. And we are Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Deborah Gillis, who's the President and Chief Executive Officer of Catalyst. If you have a question about what we're discussing or you'd like to chime in, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Deborah, I want to get back now to that question of how Catalyst does its work, particularly around this issue of moving from compliance to commitment to really changing culture and behavior. Um, But I'm particularly interested because Catalyst is big. It's global. You work with governments, not-for-profits, private corporations, correct? We work primarily with um, private uh, corporations or uh, public companies. Um, We do support... I'll call it the policy environment, to the extent of our perspective on issues facing women at work is often used to um, provide background or context as governments are considering policies. And, And that's certainly true around the world in different markets that we're operating in. How different do you find the dialogue in different parts of the world? How different does it need to be? You know, I must say, as I first started doing this work globally, I was surprised by a certain level of commonality 
of issues facing women in workplaces. I expected it to be very different, but when you talk to women in organizations, whether it's in the U.S. or in India or in Japan or in parts of Europe, we hear the same set of issues, women feeling excluded from informal networks, not having sufficient role models that help them to see positive examples of women in leadership. Um, We hear questions about work life and flexibility. We hear examples of women um, facing stereotypes or biases in the workplace that prevent them from getting the opportunities that they want. There's just, there's a core set of issues that are common across those geographies. What's interesting is the either legislative landscape or cultural context in which those women are working and the companies that they're operating in. So, for example, in countries like India or Japan, we see a whole set of family dynamics that create additional pressure on women to leave the workforce once they've had um, been married and had children. Mm-hmm. So they're different and more pronounced, those kinds of pressures, um, societal pressures and norms that exist on women, and then layer on top of that um, lack of access to facilities for child care or other kinds of things that, that cause uh, that make it even more difficult in some cases. So as I say, for me, that was really interesting. I expected very different issues, but in fact, there's a common core of experiences that women share when they're working in a corporate environment in countries around the world. You know, it's like when you see good design or you hear good research, it takes something that seems so complex and it becomes just crystal clear when you put it that way. It actually makes a lot of sense. The barriers are different um, and anchored to the cultural differences, but the experience of not being given opportunity, not having the support to parent and go to work, um, it makes sense that those are common experiences. As you... Go ahead. And and part of that, why it makes sense is what, again, is common across those cultures is that men hold the majority of decision-making roles. They're in the power positions. And so um, when women are in those minority positions, the dynamics that I just described um, are pretty consistent across organizations and uh, um, in countries around the world. And so, again, the emphasis on how do you disrupt the default in those, those organizations and in those cultures define a new norm for what leadership looks like and what the right set of policies and processes are. And, of course, again, how do you drive that inclusive culture? Because you know, we, we like to say that businesses have an opportunity to shape the culture within their four walls that then also influences the kinds of conversations that their employees are having outside of the workplace that can have a ripple effect on the broader societal discussion. Absolutely. So when you do this work with organizations in different parts of the world, how deep into the organization do you go? Well, it really depends. And I I say that um, because we work with about 800 organizations globally. And in some cases, those organizations would leverage catalyst research. They would take what we understand about these issues and and workplace policies and practices and implement them. In other cases, they might choose to roll out a program that we've developed. So, for example, we have a series of learning programs Mm -hmm. called Leading with Inclusion or a program that we call Mark Leaders, Men Advocating Real Change. They might choose to roll those programs out to Um, many of their employees. In other cases, they might choose to have us do an analysis of the data and issues that are happening in their company. That might mean surveying employees. It might mean doing focus groups. It might mean helping them shape a strategy through our consulting team of what they need to change going forward. So in some cases, it's it's quite deep where we go into mm-hmm. those, 
you know, really do the analytics of what's happening in a company. In other cases, it's higher level and strategic. But all of our resources, the insights that we have, the research, the tools, the best practices, um, webinars and activities that we host are available for all of the employees um, in, in that company. And, you know, part of it, too, as, as you know, I, I talk about those range of activities, we really try to share it and ensure that companies are utilizing it, partly based on where they are mm-hmm. in the diversity and inclusion journey. Some are much more sophisticated, um, either in terms of their own resources or the um, the amount of time or work that they've put into this agenda. In other cases, they're at a different stage, and so what they need from us may be very different than a company that you know is at a different end of the journey. It's fascinating to hear the whole picture. I first discovered Catalyst when I was hungry uh, for data. (laughs) (laughs) And you present not just um, really well-gathered data, but it's unbelievably well-presented. In fact, you make it almost impossible not to easily digest it. Well, thank you, Uh, Maria. The research team and our our communications and marketing teams would love to hear that. (laughs) Not really. I've been turning to your data for years. um, And uh, if people want to go and uh, go online and see more about the data and the resources that are are available, what's the best place for them to go to? They can go to Catalyst.org and find all of the resources there. And they'll find a mix of things, um, as you know from what you've worked on, um, and that is from research studies to infographics mm-hmm. to to tips and tools that can help you think about your career as an individual. Um, or if you're an HR practitioner, you might find um, practices that can help you think about something you might do in your organization. But it's all available at Catalyst.org, and uh, and we really encourage folks to to go and take a look, and of course to follow us on social media. Um, you know, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and um, and and really get exposed to the things that we're doing. I, I can't say enough about how rich it is and how effective it is. And I'd also add um, an audience for you, um, that if you're running a team and you want to help, even if you're not at the top of your organization, um, and you want to help support women in the conference room, in your office space, you want to improve the discourse, there's amazing resources there. One that I found this morning as I was going through again, and it was at um, catalyst.org dot org backslash knowledge by the numbers and it was flip the script yeah and a marvelously clear infographic but how you can take the usual um biased reaction unconscious as it might be and become aware of it and flip it so that you can disrupt the ways that it's um served as a barrier you know i'm so glad that you mentioned that one i love um, the, the two flip the scripts that we've put out, and there's yes. a couple of more that are that are being prepared. And part of it, it does exactly what you described, and, and it is let's change the conversation here um, by flipping the script from the words that we use, the questions we ask, where we're not even aware of what how they're being heard. We may have a very different intention. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're saying, how we're saying it, and how it's being heard and then translated into action can have really detrimental impacts uh, for women and people of color. And so um, those kinds of pieces for us are really examples of where we try to take the research and learning that we've had over many, many years and put it into bite-sized, easy-to-follow you could do this tomorrow kinds of, of strategies. So for any of your listeners, as you say, who are managing teams, wanting to be more effective, um, there's a number of resources there that can really help you think differently about what you do. We have a tool that's very much like that. What are the top 10 things that men can do to be more inclusive? We have um, those kinds of tip sheets that talk about how to navigate your career, negotiate for a new role. 
So again, we try to play to a number of different audiences in ways that go back to how do I change my behavior? Because culture and organizations is, of course, driven by the actions of individuals. And if we can help equip individuals to behave in ways that are more inclusive, then that's going to really have a huge impact on that culture that we were talking about earlier. Absolutely. But it starts with that idea of, again, I'm not fixing someone else. I'm starting with myself. Yeah, and there's a piece of that that is the personal accountability. It's, It's one for me that I think is another shift that we've seen in some of this conversation over time. You know, we've, we've moved from D&I is the responsibility of, you know, our human resources department or our D&I leadership to really trying to make the point that this is about me. It's about my accountability for how I act, how I treat my colleagues, the decisions that I make. And if I change my behaviors, then I'm also having a, I'm causing um, someone on my team a colleague or a member of my team to experience the workplace differently. And when they experience the workplace differently, that, again, has huge potential to change their career and opportunity. Absolutely. I want to give one example with the little bit of time we have before the break, Um, that to say to somebody, a person of color, you are so articulate, reinforces the stereotype that people of color and ethnic minorities would be less competent. And instead of stating the obvious and a skill set that any accomplished professional would have, point out concrete examples of how that individual excelled. And you move past the default mechanism. Is exactly that- right. It's a really good example. And why, you know, again, you're, you're referencing the flip the script that, that really mm-hmm. looked at, at um, race and gender. And, and this issue of the intersection of race and gender is critical for us. So that's a really good example. And again, mm-hmm. someone, you know, comes back to so much of the conversation that we're all having these days about unconscious bias. And, you know, here's someone who probably is well-intentioned, doesn't even understand they don't they don't know what they exactly. don't know and they're, they are, they're, <laughs> they're saying something that is both deeply hurtful but also um, is really discriminatory in many ways and and disparaging of that person who's hearing it right without it actually being intended to come across that way but exactly. we're going to talk more about all of this after the break Deborah I can't wait to continue the conversation um, I'm Laura Zarrow you're listening to women at work here on business radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111 if you want to give us a call while we're on break 844-942-7866 that's 1-844-WHARTON join the conversation and we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women, all kinds of women, to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I get the great good fortune today of talking with Catalyst's President and CEO, Deborah Gillis. We've been talking about the amazing work that Catalyst does, its scope, um, the various prongs of their work, and in our second half hour today, we're going to explore that a little more with Deborah, hear her personal story, um, and if you'd like to join in the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at one 844 for Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Deborah, welcome back. Thank you. So, um, in our last half hour, you were talking about the various um, branches of work or the the big ways that Catalyst um, works to advance women in the workplace. You know, there's the um, way you work directly with organizations, sometimes in deep consulting, um, the data that you gather that can help educate all of us, the learning platforms that you create. There's one in particular I want to dial into a little bit, given that I live in Wharton People Analytics which is how you're getting analytics on diversity. One of the things that um, we've seen, and we heard about it quite eloquently from Maxine Williams, who's the global head of diversity. She gave the keynote at the People Analytics Conference that we held. And she talked about the challenge of getting the N, 
particularly in analytics, that when you have underrepresented group, that they may come up on may not come up on the kind of statistical research that's being done within the organization. Yet at the same time, organizations are loath to work with outsiders on diversity issues because they're frightened. How do you guys penetrate that? <laughs> well, part of it, I think, for us comes back to we have been in this business since 1962. Um, our core business has always been working with organizations to understand issues around diversity and inclusion. So in many ways, we are a trusted partner um, when it comes to providing advice. Um, it's You're right, and um, the observation of it's not always easy to um, get the kind of sample that you want to do the kind of analyses that we uh, do. But on the other hand, given our long track record in this work, we um, have the good fortune of building relationships, working with organizations, and, and that often opens the door and makes it easier for us. Um, and our research team does just an outstanding job. Um, they have been doing, as I said, this work for, for many years and uh, have the relationship, so that, that makes a big difference. We're actually starting, um, we've just started a new bit of work that we're doing that we're calling the Catalyst Inclusion at Work Survey. And in this case, we have piloted the survey with 10 companies, 10,000 respondents from around the world to help us explore those issues of inclusion at an individual team and organization-wide level. And it's something that we hope to take um, out and launch more broadly um, in, the, in the fall of this year. The, the entire thing sounds important and amazing, but particularly in that you're gathering data from across organizations. Yeah, exactly. So you're um, going to get the N. <laughs> I hope so. That's, that's our intent. And again, we, we want to, to the earlier part of our conversation before the break, Laura, we were talking about, you know, going beyond the numbers, what's the representation, which will always be a critical part of the puzzle because, you know, frankly, the progress we've seen is not progress at all. It's mm -hmm. been so slow. Um, we need to keep our eye on that ball, but understanding what's going on in terms of inclusion and whether cultures are changing in ways that they need to and whether the investments that organizations are making in more inclusive cultures is actually paying off, um, we think is really important. Oh, it's critical. In looking at your various efforts, um, there was a way that they fell into kind of two categories for me. Um, and I want to test it out on you and see, is this a okay. useful way of thinking about it? And I if, hope our marketing team is listening. <laughs> we, we may get some good advice here. Um, that there's one, one aspect of it, one side of the coin, is prevention and protection. How to prevent sexual harassment, how to um, not have the emotional tax levied on underrepresented groups, how to help, be people, help people feel psychologically safe as preconditions for inclusion. And then the other side of that coin is actually advocating for progress and giving people roles and creating visibility in relationships and building a pipeline. Um, it seems to me like one is about preventing the negative and one is about creating the positive. Is that fair or is there a different way um, I should be looking at it? Yeah, no, it's an interesting way to frame it. You know, we, we always talk about the work as raising awareness with a view that if you name a problem or understand a problem or an issue, that's critical to the next step, which is advocating for change. So um, for us, that the two sides of that coin really are understanding what the issues are and then pointing to what's the path forward. And certainly in our long history, the issue of naming the problem or understanding the problem has come back to let's deal with business leaders on a fact basis. Let's move beyond anecdotes to mm -hmm. data, analytics, insights that business leaders will view as credible. And the credibility of that piece is critical to having people make that transition to, okay, I understand there's an issue. Now what am I going to do? And so that flip from, 
one side of the coin to the other um, is certainly uh, really, really important. And for us, again, that shift to moving beyond um, it's someone else's problem mm-hmm. to solve, it's leadership's problem, it's the HR department's problem, to we all have a role to play in acting more inclusively and therefore in challenging our own biases and assumptions, flipping the script in a way that can change um, opportunities and experiences and and really turn potential into reality, certainly for women in workplaces. I want to talk a little bit about just one of the problems and then flip the switch to talk about how we create some opportunity. Okay. Um, in particular, because I think it's unfortunately uh, persistent and clearly pervasive in some organizations, is sexual harassment. Could you share a little bit about how Catalyst approached understanding this from an evidence-based perspective, how you've used data to understand this, and um, what are the what are some suggestions or ways that you're guiding organizations to remove it from the culture? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, for us, again, the work is in looking at what are the um, you know, kind of discriminatory behaviors in workplaces that um, result in women being treated unfairly. What are both the behaviors, the practices, the biases that come into play, drawing awareness of them, um, raising awareness of them, and then talking about proactive solutions for mitigating those kinds of situations um, for women. Um, that's a really part, an important part of what we've been doing. We certainly, you know, when we advise organizations on the, the sexual harassment issues specifically, you know, we talk about things like developing and implementing prevention strategies, so high visible, high, highly visible community education campaigns, reporting mechanisms within workplaces, training managers to report complaints or observations of harassment, and, of course, thoroughly investigating complaints. Those are all issues that we talk about. But, again, for, you know, an important part of this is, you know, you you talked about the journey from compliance to commitment. We really want to help influence inclusive cultures Mm -hmm. where... um, behaviors of individuals are consistent with a culture and environment where people are treated fairly and openly um, regardless of who they are and that um, and that that creates an environment that is both physically and psychologically safe for um, women and other underrepresented minorities to fully contribute in the workplace. Actually, interesting, it, it sounds like it's coming back to this idea of really seeing people, that part of eradicating sexual harassment is eradicating um, the secrecy around it and making sure that there are mechanisms to see it, call it out, and report it appropriately and safely. Well, and, and you know, I think that this is true about many aspects of the agenda when we talk about gender equality. Transparency around pay and mm-hmm. data. Um, when you are powered with information, then that allows you to make choices, um, to understand and to advocate um, in different ways. So I do think that that kind of openness and transparency in organizations um, is really important part of the puzzle. Critically important. And it also sounds like, uh, for me, and I may have to um, spend, I might write about this, but the idea that when we really see each other, we value each other for our real contributions, it also means that we're really seeing the negative as well as the positive, and um, it, but it's part of waking up to what's really going on at work. Well, you know, I, I love that you framed it that way, Laura. I mean, um, it resonates as well with the work we've done around gender, race, and ethnicity in workplaces. And, and there we've, we've talked again about, to your point, seeing someone for who they really are, having open and real conversations that are sometimes difficult but are really necessary to understand someone and who they are in their perspective. We talk about the importance of approaching of approaching these conversations with a spirit of positive intent so that there's a culture that says, 
hey, I may not say something in exactly the right way, but that's better than not saying something at all or not asking a question that helps me to understand. Um, because once you have that level of understanding and, you know, again, as you've said, you said, you see someone, then that's a really powerful platform from which to build bridges and to, to really think about people differently. And once that happens, you're starting to get over those stereotypical notions of what someone could or could not do that opens up a world of possibilities in terms of their contribution. Absolutely. So it sounds like developing psychological safety, I mean, first and foremost, it's for the people who didn't feel safe being who they are. And as a result, um, were living with the constant stress of hiding themselves. But it sounds like that's not just for the underrepresented group. It's making a safe place for those who may not be underrepresented but are in the positions of power to say, I want to know more. I may have made a mistake. Help me understand this and being open to learning. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and if you have that kind of culture, um, again, where that, that sense of psychological safety is really tied to what we see around inclusion, where you feel a sense of belonging and uniqueness, when that exists, then it means I can challenge an idea that you make. I can put a new idea on the table. Mm-hmm. I can ask a question or probe on something without fear that it's going to come back to bite me in some way. So once that environment takes shape, then um, the whole culture uh, starts to shift. And in fact, it's where, as I, I think I said earlier, we see in, in our research that that's really where innovation thrives in organizations mm-hmm. because you've got that spirit that allows <laughs> for the, that to really happen. Absolutely. Um, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with the extraordinary Deborah Gillis, president and CEO of Catalyst. Um, Deborah, in that same idea then of how we move um, past that point of not seeing, and we start to recognize the talent that's in our midst, um, the abilities of people who may not be in leadership positions. One of the key things that we all are trying to work on is how to get more women into the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing a little you know, background research for the show today, um, it was very interesting to see the way the Catalyst talks about a pipeline, a cultivating succession, um, not just one person, but kind of two generations of people coming into roles deep. Could you talk a little bit about um, building a pipeline to get people into these kinds of leadership roles? Well, the pipeline is really critical. Um, you know, you, you need to have talent in the pipeline in order to be able to advance into those most senior roles. And when we look at the data of where women are represented, it really emphasizes this point. You know, in it's kind of when I when I look at it, it sometimes makes me really discouraged. But you know, as a, uh, it's a fact that between 1972 um, and today, there have been 62 women who have served as Fortune 500 CEOs. That's it. That's it. In all those years. In all those years. In all those years. We have uh, classrooms at Wharton that hold more people than that. <laughs> I'm sure you do. But think about that number. And and how are we going to change that dynamic? We're only going to change that if we're building pipeline. And so, you know, we, we track, um, we call it our pyramids, and it really shows the fact that at the, the base of the pyramid that women represent half the population, about half of the labor force. And, of course, we know that women are, are earning the majority of college and university degrees. So, but as you go higher and higher into the the upper ranks, as I've just described, you see fewer and fewer women. Mm-hmm. So, what organizations really need to be doing is is minding the gap, frankly. Um, and in minding the gap, they need to be looking at what's the starting point of women's representation in different bands, and does it change? Is women are women's promotion rates, are women's retention rates? equal to or greater than their their representation in a band. If not, we're going to continue to see that drop-off. So looking throughout the pipeline is really critical because 
you have to go deep in order to have um, the folks in place that you need. I love to quote the Prime Minister of Canada, I'm Canadian, um, who at the Catalyst Awards dinner when we recognized him a couple of years ago, um, talked about his uh, gender-balanced cabinet, and he said, it didn't happen by accident. I started years in advance with a program that I called Ask Her to Run. And he described the need to have multiple conversations with women to encourage them to seek elected office that would then position them um, to be considered for cabinet. That was a pipeline development initiative. And in the same way for organizations, we need to be intentional about the building of the pipeline and ensuring that women get the same opportunities as men. Because in fact, again, our research shows that when we look at assignments for high potential talent, men are much more likely to be promoted earlier, partly because they get access to high visibility assignments in greater numbers than women, larger teams, larger visibility, Um, to senior executives, which then puts them in line for promotion. So we need to look all the way down um, across the pipeline and at those early stages of women's careers to ensure, one, they're getting paid fairly, and two, that they're getting the same opportunity to advance. And that goes back to that idea that it's the million little pixels that happen along the way. Are they um, are their voices heard in the conference room? Are they assigned to the more challenging project? Are they leading teams of men? Are they given p and l responsibility so that when it's time to stand for promotion, um, they've been both made visible visible to their peers and supervisors, but also develop both the skills and the track record that they'll be measured against. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we again, we call them those. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. (laughs) The women experience those daily microaggressions where, you know, it's just that constant, why is it that when I made a point, no one listened, and when my male colleague made it, that everyone paid attention? And in those moments, who is the person with the courage at the table to say, actually, it was Laura who made that point? Um, And, you know, again, that comes back to those intentional inclusive behaviors that I was talking about earlier, where we need to be much more deliberate about how we're going about this. And that also, you know, really speaks to this question, too, of women are promoted based on performance versus potential. There's a clear difference Mm -hmm. between how men and women are treated. How many times have we heard, she's not ready? One more cycle. You know, women, you know, I often say sit our bench bench sitters. They're sitting on the, <laughs> yeah. the, that uh, high potential seat for a long time. We need to get to, you must clearly articulate the gap in competencies that that woman is experiencing and make it the responsibility of her manager to work with her to close those gaps so, again, she's positioned in the next cycle for that promotion. It's almost as an imagi- as a manager embracing the responsibility that part of how you're measured is do you get your team members ready for their next job? Yeah, and, they, and, and we need to be held accountable for that. That's what I like to call skin in the game. Mm-hmm. We need to have, you know, zero tolerance policy for behaviors that are, are exclusionary. And two, we have to create skin in the game, which is I need to understand that part of how I'm evaluated is whether I am developing and promoting and encouraging diverse talent to have an opportunity to succeed. And if I'm not, shame on me, that reflects on my performance as a leader. Absolutely. So, Deborah, with the few minutes that we have left, um, one of the things that is truly a miracle for the rest of us is that we get you in this kind of impactful role. Who was it along the way that helped you get here? How did you wind up ascending into this kind of a role? You know, I I like to say that there is no straight path that got me to this role. Um, I grew up in a small village in Cape Breton, Canada. I lived on a gravel road in an old farmhouse with no central heating. Um, my parents didn't graduate from high school. There, there's no straight path from there to, you know, an office on Wall Street and, <laughs> and working around the world. Um, I was like anyone else. It's a mix of education and hard work, 
um, and earning through my performance the confidence of mentors and sponsors who created opportunities for me. I often say they had confidence in me before I had confidence in myself, but but always really encouraged me. And, and I must say that, that, that having this conversation this week is really special because it's just been announced that I'm going to receive an honorary doctorate in recognition of my work from Cape Breton University, which is Congratulations! Um, where I grew up, so uh, it's a, a really special recognition for my career. That absolutely is, and kind of poignant. It, it, I, you wholeheartedly deserve it. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, though, is that you have been an advocate of one form or another, an activist throughout your whole career. Um, what planted that seed in you? And um, if somebody else, if we want to help the other potential activists and advocates out there, um, what advice would you give them? You know, I, I would say for me, it was really spurred by the example of my parents and the community I grew up in. Um, you know, I, I frankly grew up in pretty challenging circumstances, and and I saw firsthand that everyone needs help from neighbors, friends, community, government, um, to get a chance to get ahead. My life story is one that says don't judge potential in people by kind of the cover. There's, mm-hmm. there's potential in unexpected places. And that spirit, I think, has really infused my sense of we all have a responsibility to give back to others. Um, and, you know, I've been very fortunate in the um, roles that I've had over the course of my career that I've been in a position to influence the decisions and choices of others to make a difference on things that matter to me and um, and now doing this certainly at Catalyst, which is an organization I just am proud to be part of and admired um, for many years before I, I came to join it. Well, it's an extraordinary organization, becoming only more so with you at the helm. Once again, if people out there want to learn more about Catalyst, either what they can learn from Catalyst or how to go to work at Catalyst, where can they find information? At Catalyst.org. And if they're interested in applying to Catalyst, is all the information there? <laughs> there, there. They can find there's a posting under our people or who we are that talks about job openings at Catalyst. And two, you know, I'd really, I'd love to engage with your listeners by connecting with us on social media where we have just lots of great, engaging, and informative content that I think uh, folks would learn from and enjoy. So how do they find you on social media? They can find us at Catalyst on Twitter and Facebook, and our YouTube channel has inspiring videos. So at Catalyst uh, Inc., you can find links to all of those. Fantastic, Deborah. It has been an honor to have you join us today and a personal pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for us. It's been great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Oh, our pleasure. Um, Thank you to our listeners. And if you have questions about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. A special thanks to my extraordinary guest today, Deborah Gillis. Um, I hope she enjoys getting that honorary degree. She certainly deserves it. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Allie, our fabulous creative sound engineer Tatiana. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you have been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 111. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.